0: The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Thanks for joining us today on the new NAS podcast series. In this series, we'll be discussing the nuances of practicing interventional spine. These topics are designed to be casual discussions about differences in practice. I'm your host, Dr. Renee Rosati. Today's guest is Dr. Zachary McCormick, Vice Chair and Associate Professor of Spine and Musculoskeletal Medicine at the University of Utah. Dr. McCormick, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today.
1: Yeah, th- thanks so much for having me.
0: So let's just dive right in. Can you tell us more about your practice at the University of Utah?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I I certainly do have a, a spine dominant practice, um, and you know do uh, see patients with other musculoskeletal conditions. Um, but I, I you know I have some administrative responsibilities, so I. I'm um, generally in clinic about uh, 60 to 70% of the week and then, um, you know, have uh, other other tasks and research um, endeavors with the other 30 to 40% of the week, uh, just given, uh, depending on the week. Um, but uh, we do have a fellowship here, of course. So um, one of the NAS ISMM fellowships and um, currently have three fellows and we'll have three fellows next year as well. Um, so certainly work, work close with those individuals and then, um, also our residents. So we have a dedicated spine rotation and, um, every resident comes through at least one to two months and then, and then, um, you know, many choose to do some elective time or additional time that they spend with us if they're interested, um, in our subspecialty. So, um, you know, I, I certainly, um, do a broad range of procedures and, um, not only spine based, but, um, again, for peripheral joints and nerves, et cetera
0: great and that's what we'll be diving into in a little bit is talking about the genicular nerve radio frequency ablation um, tell us a little bit about yourself outside of work
1: um yeah so I um, I'm married I have a couple of kids Um we an almost three year old. So our, our daughter Olivia will be three um just in a week and a half and um gonna celebrate her birthday, do some fun stuff for her. And then we have a son, uh James, who is just about a year and a half. So we definitely have our hands full, busy at work and and busy at home. Um it's a it's a ton of fun. Um I um, you know, other than it, I think you know, family and the kids have definitely um, consumed a lot of my time, which is wonderful. Um, but otherwise, you know, I, am a runner, you know, have participated and competed in, in, um, distance running. And, you know, before that, um, I just did a decathlon in college and, have, you know, always been, um, uh, both a, an active participant and a big sports fan. So probably like, like many folks in, uh, in physical medicine rehab.
0: What is the race that you've competed in that you're most proud of that you did?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, if I had to pick one, um, I, I suppose probably, um, the, the, I ran the Boston marathon, um, times and, um, multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. One particular year. Um, where, uh, the just race went phenomenally well. And my, I have a lot of family in Boston. So, you know, it's kind of a a special race beyond just it it being the Boston marathon, um, where, you know, my family comes out, grandparents even come out there in their nineties, um, and there was one particular year that, um, things sort of clicked and, um, ran a very good time and, um, had a lot of fun doing it and just wonderful to be able to kind of celebrate with, um, with my extended family.
0: Wow. Thank you for sharing that. What, what stage in your career did you do that?
1: This was, this was a number of years ago. So I was, um, I think that was, I was actually in my fourth year of residency. So, you know, fast forward several years and, um, you know, um, coincidentally have dealt with plenty of low back pain of my own, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) probably, you know, in part related to, to running, but, but actually other ball sports before, before running and, um, have, maybe spent more time uh, in physical therapy than, um, than competing in races for the past, probably seven years or so, but uh, I, I still get out and, um, you know, try to get exercise every day and, um, yeah, you know, things change, but, um, certainly enjoyed those days of racing.
0: Well, that's good. And it makes you relate to patients more too.
1: Uh, hundred percent. Yep. I've certainly, um, you know, had my share of uh, Flexeril and Medrol dose packs and, uh, you know, McKenzie. So.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about the genicular RFA. You know, this is a procedure I really wanted to learn coming into fellowship and throughout my year in fellowship, I noticed some attendings became maybe less of a fan of it and some attendings stopped offering it. So can you tell us why like the genicular RFA is maybe controversial to do and why maybe it's falling out of favor or why we should keep doing it?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great a, a great question. And I would say a, a common observation. And um, what I can tell you is I've been doing the procedure for probably about a decade. Um, I was, you know, I was doing it when I was in training, um, and, um, uh, have really adapted. I, I, what I do today is nothing like what I was doing when I first learned the procedure. Um, so I would agree that, you know, when using the classic approach with, um, with three lesions at sort of the described locations from, um, the early studies that most are familiar with, um, I was unimpressed with the outcomes and, and we took a look at this. I mean, we, we did research and, um, did a practice audit and, um, did some early clinical trial work and, um, the, you know, to sort of get to the, the to the, uh, to to cut to it. Um, if you ignore, um, I think the, the variability and all the additional nerves that aren't captured, um, with the Kind of usual methods for targeting the genicular, the genicular nerves, um, you probably will be disappointed in your outcomes, and I was early on for sure. So I can relate. Um, what I do now um, is really, you know, create a vastly more more lesions um, at more uh, sites, and also use larger lesions. So uh, at this point, I'm actually mostly using um, bipolar lesioning. Um, and, you know, multiple passes or, you know, a placement and withdrawing the needle to create almost think of like a strip lesion with bipolar, um, like, like what you might do for a sacral, uh, lateral branch neurotomy procedure, creating kind of a palisade lesion, um, but with, uh, in the knee and with the goal of really just capturing more territory. So, um, you know, I, I, hopefully some folks are familiar with the newer dissection work, um, you know, Tran, the Toronto group and so on. Um, and you know, th- there are far more nerves and far more variability to those nerves than, um, I think what we have had all been accounting for early on. So I think, um, again, like Renee folks that, you know attendings that folks are working with and they're they're maybe not so excited about the the genicular procedure anymore because they're not really happy with how their patients are doing. Um I think it's a matter of adapting the lesioning protocol. And, and for me that's made a huge difference. And I probably changed it like 10 or 12 times honestly um, over the past five years or so. Um so um that that's one thing. The other is is I think probably reimbursement is driving some of this. And um, if you're doing a more extensive procedure, it definitely takes time. Um, the you know the reimbursement is probably not um, uh, properly concordant with the time it takes to do the procedure well and thoroughly. Um, you right. Know, if you compare- so if
0: you're increasing your lesioning, you know, uh, and doing tons of bipolar lesions, this makes the procedure go pretty long. Now, so how how many minutes do you block off for? do you do bilateral like a bilateral rfa
1: i do i okay. don't do bilateral knees so i would say that uh the way that i do things now um it's probably a 25 minute procedure um but uh you know that's actually long compared to um other rfa procedures that we do you know if you're really kind of in the groove and, and efficient um with your procedure so it is a little bit of a longer procedure honestly um
0: It takes you 25 minutes once they're cleaned off on the bed, X-ray lined up or
1: the whole thing. Okay. The whole thing. Yeah. So I, I usually, I usually, um, have a 30 minute slot for genicular RFA patient
0: for one side. One okay.
1: side, yeah, I don't do bilateral. Um, you know, my feeling just based on experience is well, one, it's a painful procedure, so I end up using a lot of local anesthetic, and you start to reach toxicity limits if you try to treat both knees on the same day. That's been my experience, um, unless you're giving someone, you know, a hefty dose of moderate sedation. Um,
0: do you also, do you use moderate sedation? Okay,
1: I I do for knees, yeah, and and so uh, you know it's going to vary based on the patient, and not every patient is going to get moderate sedation. Who I do genicular RF for, but I would say that of all the procedures that I do, um, a genicular RFA is probably the most painful. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, in my experience, more painful than than um, RF at really any other at, at spinal levels, um, sacroiliac joint. Um, I do an occasional shoulder based on my experience, I would say the knee is, is, is the most painful. Um, so I do off, I tend to offer moderate sedation for genicular RFA.
0: And it's tough. The patient's looking at you and looking at the needle on their knee, you know, if, if they're, they're not yeah, knocked out. So
1: well, agreed. And, and I mean, I think, you know, coaching them through it is is really helpful. And it's also really helpful if you've got, um, you know, good staff, nurses, uh, CNAs, et cetera, who can um, you know, help distract them a little bit from the procedure. So, cause you're right, right? I mean, most, many of the procedures that we do in spine anyway, um, patient is, is, uh, prone or, or lying, especially for an RFA anyway.
0: One thing that I have found difficult is the patient positioning to get them and their knee lined up with the C arm so that your depth is appropriate for the needles. And sometimes we have to do a lot of wag. And I have found that the patient population usually has a very elevated BMI. And that makes um, the positioning of the knee even harder sometimes. So how have you circumnavigated these challenges?
1: Yeah. Um, I can tell you how I do it. it. It's, it may or may not be the the best way, but it seems to work for me anyway. So I usually just use a bolster, like a large bolster under the knee that we're actually treating. Um, that way when you go to lateral, um, that knee is elevated, um, and you're, you're not seeing the other knee, um, you know, in that lateral view. So it's, it's flat on the table and the knee of interest is elevated. Um, that, um, that usually fixes that issue. Many patients they they tend to the leg falls out or rather the hip externally rotates naturally, just falls in that direction. So then people are either kind of taping or strapping the leg in an internal rotation position to get that true AP view. Um, or I find it easier just to oblique a bit. So um, if you just oblique, um, you know, towards the direction of external rotation of the hip, um, you can, you can capture that, that true AP view without needing to necessarily tape the patient's leg or worry about, you know, holding the leg in place and in internal rotation. Okay. Um, but, uh, just a couple tips there, but, um, yeah, Renee, I, I would say, um, other than that, um, just, you know, making sure that you do a little bit of cephalide tilt for your, uh, femoral epicondyl replacements, and then a little bit of caudal tilt, um, for this is in the AP view, um, uh, for the, um, uh, the tibial flare replacements, that way you're, you're really getting a true AP view of, of that, you know, that particular, segment, if you will. So kind of squaring the tibial plateau for those, those, uh, tibial flare placements, um, is going to make sure you have, you know, proper placement where you really want those electrodes to be. Um, but interesting about the wigwag that you mentioned, um, with the lateral view, I think that the biggest thing is just making sure that, um, you've superimposed the condyles. Um, the wigwag is going to help you, um, to to perfectly line up the condyles, you're right. You may have to use a little bit of wigwag. Trouble is, the condyles might not be the same size. So if you worry too much about um, perfectly superimposing them, um, it, it, you may be shooting yourself in the foot a little bit. I think most importantly, it's just making sure that you have the right amount of internal or external rotation of the uh, the hip joint to superimpose the condyles. Um, you know, along that plane to make sure that um, your depth of where you're inserting electrodes is um, is what you what you think it is. Um, obviously, if if there's some ex, some external rotation of the hip that's unaccounted for, um, you're you're going to be fooled by what you're saying on that lateral view.
0: Okay, those were great little nuances. You know that that I'm grateful that you shared with us. So thank you. What else should we know about uh, the genicular RFA before we wrap up?
1: I think I think you touched on a lot of good high points. Um, what I would just say, you know, circling back to Um, the point you made earlier is I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up on this procedure so soon. I think there's a lot of good stuff coming down the, uh, the pike. So, um, the scope trial, it, it, some folks may be familiar, but, um, 28 center, um, trial with a couple different phases, um, non-invasive and then invasive. And um, within the the second phase, which involves invasive treatments for the knee, um, this is patients with uh, a native knee. So, you know, not those who have post TKA knee pain, Um, uh, randomizing to genicular ablation versus um, genicular blocks with pupillacaine and steroid versus interarticular hyaluronic acid mixed with steroids. So this is a huge study. And one of the cool things about it, I think is that the protocol involves targeting up to 10 genicular nerves. And so this is going to show us, um, you know, outcomes, um, you know, large scale, um, when more nerves are being targeted. And really, I mean, you know, I'm not aware of any study that's been published so far, um, you know, large prospective trial, um, certainly randomized, where more than four nerves have been targeted. So I think this will be pretty interesting to see what happens. And this is still, you know, much data collection to be done. Um, but, uh, you know, that's one. Um, the other is, I think, looking at the post-TKA pain population. So um, whether or not it ends up being um, you know, genicular ablation that solves this problem, I don't know, um, but I will say that as we've expanded our protocols for lesioning, um, we've seen better and better success. And in particular, um, a nerve that many people don't really look at or target in classic protocols is the infrapatellar branch of the saphenous nerve. Um, this is one that... Um, it's fairly well described that you can have a neuralgia of this particular nerve. Um, and it's probably related to the surgical exposure during a, a, a total knee pl- replacement. Um, so we, we've had some luck, I can say personally, and our group has had some luck where, um, we specifically include that nerve. Um, and it, it seems to really make a difference because I think, you know, many have had the experience that it's just challenging to treat these, these folks with post TK knee pain. Um, so I think, you know, you gotta include more nerves, um, and it, it, it may be more challenging than just the genicular nerve ablation realistically. But um, I think, you know, another frontier and I think genicular nerve ablation has a place, you know, in that care paradigm.
0: Great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: We're going to wrap up, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Please message us on Instagram if you have some topics you would like an expert to discuss. And uh, we'll we'll hear from other experts later in the month. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. McCormick.
1: Yeah, thank you, Renee.